wasn't just a journey to the cross, it was a journey through the cross. And when we originally thought of the series that we were sharing leading up to Easter, it was with that in mind, that the cross was not going to be an end point, but neither, because it wasn't an end point for Jesus. I mean, the cross led to an, a, a tomb, and that tomb led to an opening of a new beginning as life conquers death, and there was hope in Christ. And, and even so, you know, we made a journey to the cross. Now we're going to go through the cross. And we're going to look at, you know, we're going to do something a little bit different than normal. Now that we're, uh, you know, we've celebrated Easter already, but what I want to do is I want to move a little bit back in time to that period that was right after the death of Christ on the cross. I want to sit with it in the next couple of weeks and then lead us into what occurs after that. And that will move us into the summer. But uh, again, focusing on that peace uh, that, that moment of silence between that Friday and that Sunday, what is often called those three days, even though it's just a part of one and a part of another, and it makes collectively Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. And when you think about it, there were some things that happened. My, my prayer is that not only would we have an enlarged understanding of what the scripture has to say about these extraordinary moments after the death of Christ, and they were extraordinary, but that we'd also be motivated and I have a purpose for this, to be more devoted, especially for those of us who've made a decision to follow Jesus with sincerity in our lives. You know, I know, I know not necessarily everybody is there. Some of us are really close to making a decision to follow Christ. But for those of us who have made that decision, a question prevails. How devoted are we willing to be? And what does that mean for that devotion to show up outside of these walls? I want to talk a little bit about that. My prayer is that all of us would be challenged in a positive way to be more inspired in our love for God. So let's look at Matthew's account. That's what we've been focused on, really. We've been focusing on Matthew's account. We've been interacting that with different aspects of the other Gospels. But for the most part, Matthew's been the, the path that we've walked down. And we're going to pick back up sort of where we left off. Because when we left off, we were focused on the cross. We, we had watched Jesus brought to the cross in that moment of... of absolute, uh, astonishing, devastating pain that he was having to endure, the shame, the stigma. Um, you know, we spent time talking, tracing the steps of Jesus from the garden of the betrayal, you know, all the way to where he was taken before Pilate. And we talked about Pilate washing his hands and then how Jesus was beaten on multiple occasions and ultimately finally condemned to death and forced to carry his own cross with his back ripped to shreds and he, he couldn't even hold up the cross. He physically wasn't able to, to do it. They had to call somebody out of, a, out of the crowd, a man by the name of Simon from Cyrene, and he helped carry the cross of Jesus to his appointed place of death outside the city walls on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. He was crucified there between two thieves, and in his uh, ignominious position, he had to suffer not only physically un, un, just a searing kind of pain, but the the ultimate indignity of watching his enemies taunt him and spit on him. And all the people who were there, as we're going to see, there was a group of people who had gathered to be there who loved Jesus. But um, it wasn't who we thought was going to be there. So we're going to talk about that as well. Suffice to say, when we get to the 50th verse, we are at Matthew's account, when it says here that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. That actually is what is known as the seventh of the seven sayings that Jesus uttered on the cross, the seven recorded sayings of Jesus. The seventh one was, Father, you know, um, into your hands I, I commit my spirit. And then he gave up, as the old, the old version says, gave up the ghost, gives up his spirit, gives up his life, breathes his last breath. In that moment, the, each of the Gospels has something to say about that moment, but Matthew's account 
just throws things in. That, that, that certain things happened in rapid fire sequence, some of them inexplicable, some of them worth noting because we are hearing things uttered out of, human, out of the mouths of, of those who are there. But, but he says that in the moment when Jesus finally unable to, to breathe, finally un, unable to continue, finally the purpose for which he had come. Remember when John saw Jesus coming, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that moment, finally, the purpose for which he had come to die in our place, to give his life away that, that we might live, to take the curse upon himself, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus there in that moment finally says, as he had settled it in the garden, when he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there's another way, I would prefer to go that way. If, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When he settled that issue on the cross, he had followed through all the way to the end. He drank that cup, drank it all the way. It's like the, the old scholars used to say, all the way to the dregs, to the very pieces and particles on the bottom, fully drank it all, the full cup of suffering. And he endures and he says, it is finished. And in that moment, it says that things happen, natural phenomena, things occurred. All of a sudden, the earth began to quake. And as the earth began to quake, we also were told that something else happened simultaneously. Matthew tells us, and you can see it there in the 52nd verse, that that, that or the 50, 51st verse that says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, so things begin to break in half. But the temple veil, that, was a, that had significant meaning. If we, were on, if we could pan the moment, you know, Jesus is on the cross. He breathes his last breath. He's, he's a mangled mess. He's got, he dies, actually, by the way, um, not of, of loss of, of blood, but he dies because he can't breathe anymore. He no longer has the strength that is required to lift yourself up so that you can breathe air. And it was not uncommon for, for those to, to die that way, although typically Romans would make sure that you were dead, and that was one of the reasons why Jesus is um, stabbed with the spear. They wanted to make sure that he's dead fully, and out of his Bible says blood and water came forth from him. They, they wanted to make sure he was dead, but they didn't have to break his legs because typically they would break a criminal's legs so that they could no longer hold themselves up. They didn't do that to Jesus because he already was dead. He breathed his last breath. In that moment, again, if, if we were panning, uh, if we had like a, a film uh, that, you know, you just can imagine sh from the, outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus says, Father, into, you, into, my hand, into your hands I commend my spirit. Whatever he had left, then through the streets, right? Into the temple, into the temple courtyard, out of the temple courtyard, into the holy place. From the holy place, there was an inner place called the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, a priest could go, but only once a year, and one priest to represent the people in the very holy presence of God. And it was separated by a veil, a curtain. And it says this massive curtain was split. In the very moment Jesus gives up his last breath, that it says, like a, like a hand from heaven, ripping apart this, this extraordinarily thick curtain that separated the, 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 the place where no one could go into the very presence of a holy God. And in that moment, it was, it was, it was torn apart. And for the first time, people, some people were looking at things they, they would have never been able to see. And, all, and what did it tell us? What was it representing? But that something absolutely amazing had transpired. Something that would change forever the economy of God, the way in which he dealt with human beings, that God would no longer dwell in a temple made with human hands. But now, for the first time, truly in the hearts of believing human beings, men and women like us who had an opening, no longer in a temple made with hands, but in the believing hearts of human beings, 
could come, the very presence of God that before there had been no access to, but without fear and trepidation. Now God truly has come near in the face of Jesus Christ and created a pathway for an intimacy with God that was never before possible, but anticipated for generations upon generations by the very prophets who proclaimed the coming of Messiah. And every one of those sacrifices that was made by the people in anticipation of an ultimate sacrifice that God himself would become. Think about it. It was stunning. It was extraordinary. It was a powerful moment. We're also told in Matthew's account that there were other things that happened, that the, the graves themselves, some graves opened up. It says in verses 52 and 53 that, that all of a sudden people were rising out and, and that you have this explosion of life. That's what we're being told. Verse 54 says, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. They were, they were stunned by what was happening and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is, and so there, you have this confession as well there that's recorded. And then we're told another thing, that there were people that were watching who loved Jesus, but it wasn't the people that we were expecting. We would have thought that the disciples would have been there, but we know the disciples had scattered. They had done what many of us do at times when we don't want to deal with something that is just so awful. They had run away. They had tried to avoid it. It was a group of women. And I know people have said, well, they didn't have the same things to fear, their fear of loss of life, but only John really had come from the disciples but the women, there was a group of women who had stayed with Jesus through the awful, bitter end. And it was horrifying, and it was violent, and it was ugly, and it was hard, so hard to look at. But I'm amazed because it says that they stayed with him all the way through it. Look what it says here. It says, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee in the north, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. And the older version says, from a distance and among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary of Zebedee's sons. And they were, they were there, this core of women who stayed with Jesus even when the dream was lost. And remember, there was nobody there saying, oh, just wait a minute, he's going to rise again. No, this was an awful ending. Jesus appeared to have been sadly mistaken about who he was. Setting all that aside, their love was true. They held, they watched it all from afar, from a distance. There's something, there is a love that lingers from a distance. And their love lingered from a distance. They were there, they were present. But the disciples weren't, but they were. But we know that there was another person who gets affected by the death of Christ. He's a man who's been hiding in the shadows. The shadows that he's been hiding in have been the shadows of not wanting others, especially his peers, to know about a conviction and a belief that he has in Jesus. We know that there was a man who was a wealthy man, a member of the, of the council of the Sanhedrin, the same council that had set the trial and held the trial and had been so much behind the crucifixion of Christ. Um, they had been the ones that pressed Pilate, had rallied the people to cry out, crucify him. But we know that some of that group, actually that Sanhedrin, that group, powerful council, some of that group believed in Jesus. And two of those men we know for sure one of whom we're about to look at in a moment. One of those men's name was Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. He was described as a wealthy man. He was a man who, if you read John's account, if you read John's account, he had secretly followed, secretly followed Jesus. There was a key phrase there, because he was afraid of the leaders. In other words, he did not reveal his affection for Christ because he felt it would cost him his career, his livelihood, his social standing, perhaps even his wealth, 
there was so much that would be at stake and in peril if he were to reveal an affection for Christ when he knew that so many people did not believe and actually wanted him dead. Now, we know that at certain times, he and his friend, who we know was Nicodemus, who I'll talk about. Well, actually, Nicodemus is also an amazing figure. Some of us remember that in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is, we are told, comes to Jesus under the cloak of darkness in the night to have a private meeting with him that's arranged. And in the course of that conversation, Jesus talks to him about what it means to be made alive in God. He talks about, there's the, that's where the, the phrase being born again comes from. It's a result of that conversation. He says, you must be born of the spirit, not just of the flesh. Nicodemus says, how can a person um, re-enter into the, his mother's womb? Jesus says, I'm, I'm not talking flesh, I'm talking spirit. They begin, he goes, are you a teacher in Israel that you don't understand these things? He's, Jesus gets into this conversation with him. Nicodemus, by the way, you know in that conversation in John 3, that secret conversation is where the mo- probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, that's the most often quoted verse in all the scripture, takes place. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then verse 17, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. That, those verses were not just said in isolation. They were said out of, a product, out of a course of a conversation that Jesus was having with this man, Nicodemus, who was a friend of Joseph. Joseph, evidently, was afraid. But you know what's amazing? Now that Jesus is dead, and it appears like Jesus had been, at least, to, to say it graciously, very mistaken about who he thought he was. All right, now is when Joseph decides to do for Jesus what he was never willing to do for him while he was alive. He's now willing to do for him in his death. He begins to step out and make it, make it known that he cared for him and believed in him in some way. And we're told here in, in this account that it says that when the evening had come, that is, as it was approaching, there came a rich man from Arimathea. Look at this. It says his name was Joseph who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, he asked for the body of Jesus, and, and Pilate uh, agreed. He commanded the body to be given to him. Now, understand this. It was, a, it was, it would a, he was taking a risk. He was taking a career risk. He, it was, it was to, to put himself out there to go, to go ask for the body of Jesus. Now, the reason this is a big deal is because you understand that by night, the time was of the essence. Because by the time uh, nightfall came... The, the Sabbath would begin, and you couldn't work. You couldn't bury anyone. So whatever daylight was left, it was imperative that, Nicod- that Nicodemus and Joseph, who evidently will, will do this together, as we'll see, but only Joseph is mentioned in Matthew's account, that Joseph, when he goes to Pilate, he has to ask for permission to very quickly get the body of Jesus because he doesn't want him to just be, be thrown down into a pit and have his body ravaged by the beast in total shame, which was part of the way that the Romans, you know, crucifixion as a, had, had become a, a, a kind of brutal uh, torture and in a perverse way, almost an art form. Rome would use it in a variety of ways to keep the people afraid. It had started in Persia and it had been perfected, however, by the Romans. And the Romans would often add to the indignity of a victim by letting their bodies be ripped apart by wild beasts after and decomposed, which would have been a particular shame for someone of, of the Jewish culture as well, uh, even adding more to the, to the, the absolute you know, 
uh, we, we would call it just cruel, not just cruelty, but the stigma of, of what would be, have been allowed to take place to the body of Jesus. So, so Joseph does what very few people could have done. He uses his power, which he had. He was almost like a senator, if you will. And he had the ability to gain access to Pilate. So he goes to Pilate for a private hearing, and he, and he asks Pilate for permission to get the body. I would like to take the body of the Jesus. And with your permission, I would like to bury it properly. I have a tomb that I would like to place him in. And Pilate, evidently still wrestling with his conscience, remember he had tried to wash his hands? I am innocent of this man's blood. But, but his guilt still, he's, take, take, go ahead, take the body. You can have it. All right? So, but we know this, that Joseph it doesn't go alone. He goes with Nicodemus, the one that I talked about in John 3, who Jesus had the conversation with about, about um, being born again and about God so loving this world that he gives his only son. And so, but here's what we're told. That, that they, this says, look at verse 39. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now, you know what we don't see here? What happens between the permission that has been given and the wrapping of the body, because you know what? They had, to go, they had to go through to Calvary. They had to go to the, the, the hill, the place of the skull, where Jesus was hanging, okay? He's still there. It's getting a little, the afternoon is clearly beginning to wane. Um, one gets a sense that there's, there's not a lot of time left. And so they, they have to quickly get to the body of Jesus. They show the permission that they've been given by Pilate. They get there. We can only assume either they took the 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 cross down, or they climbed up. But we know this, that if you were to see the body of Christ at this point, remember now, he, he is mangled. He is a mess. His, he, his face is disfigured. Um, his hands are still nailed. His feet are nailed. Uh, he has dried blood all over him, everywhere. His body's, I mean, it, he is a mangled mess. And they have to somehow get him off of the cross, whether they took the nails out first, however they've done it, but they had to get him off of there. And then they had to have, they had to carry his weight. And we know that the women were following, and it becomes in its own way kind of a, 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 a processional till they get to the grotto where the tomb was. And we're told here that Joseph, after he had taken the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, that he had laid it in a new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock. And then what they did was they prepared the body of Jesus as fast as they could. Again, we know that time was of the essence because when Sabbath hits, when the night falls and the sun sets and that last ray of, of sun is there, they have to then stop. So they have to quickly wrap Jesus. They try to do it as tenderly as they can, as quickly as they can, and as appropriately as they can. Uh, they put a little bit of spices, but not as much as they would have in a normal situation, which is why, by the way, two days later, Sunday morning, the women will come back thinking we're going to finish the job that wasn't completely done. We need to completely honor him and we need to take care of him and give him a proper, full burial um, because it was done with uh, somewhat rapidly. Again, tenderly, gently, um, but caringly, but nonetheless, very quickly. They got Jesus into the tomb. They rolled, had the stone rolled in front and then darkness closes in in so many ways it closed in. And then that is how it would have ended. By the way, that is where, if Jesus didn't rise, that's where this whole thing would have ended, right there, which is where everybody thought it was ending. Now, I have some things to say about this, because I've been struck 
by the different expressions of devotion that showed up in this, in this particular hours where the body of Jesus is being on. And I want to submit some things to you and then have you think about it in the form of some questions. So here's the first question I want to put out. And we've been talking about it again. I want to ask this question on the front end. For some of us, there's a question, and it's put like this. How willing, how willing are we to declare our devotion to Christ for him? See, all of us who follow Jesus will have to wrestle with this at one time or another. Um, it was a question that, that Joseph and Nicodemus did uh, have to wrestle with as well. I mean, to what degree and in what way are we willing to express our devotion to Christ? The, the, evidently, Joseph was fearful about letting other people know that how he felt about Jesus when Jesus was alive because he didn't want to lose his position or the opinion of his peers. That there was such a risk involved with him letting it be known that he was a serious follower of Jesus and an admirer of him, that he always had to live, as it were, in the shadows of that conviction. That he couldn't really afford to take the risk of sharing his heart because he was afraid of what it would cost him. And I suppose that all of us at one time or another will have to wrestle with this question. There are times where some of us are put in situations where we have to decide, how much am I going to let others know about what I think about him? Perhaps things are being said. Um, not every environment is uh, an environment where it's easy to talk about Jesus. There are some situations where to refer to him and to suggest that we are committed to him may at some point cost us, or at least place us in an awkward place. And so for some of us, we have become reluctant to share the degree of our love for him. And we, we are afraid. And I think all of us at times will have to wrestle with this. To what, at what point can I no longer be at peace with being afraid to let others know that I am a follower of Jesus? You see, I, and I get it too, I understand. And, and every situation is a little bit different. Some of us are involved in, see, I look at Joseph and, and Nicodemus, their culture, their work culture, created a high level of animosity to Jesus. And so they had to be extremely careful about what they said because they understood the implications because it wasn't just like a passive feeling about Jesus. It was a deep hostility to him. So they had to deal with that as a reality. And some of us at different times will have to deal with that as a reality as well. Maybe not to the same levels, but we all have to weigh out at what point is the Lord saying, you know what, you need to stand up. You need to. Now, again, not in a, in a proud way. Some of us might feel like, well, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable. I feel like I'd be a hypocrite, whatever. You know what? Listen, there are moments where it's not just about the opposite. We, we must be willing to risk out of love for Jesus. We must be willing to speak up. We must be, look. Joseph decides that he can no longer simply abide. And, and it's amazing to me um, that he decides that he must risk his reputation and honor Christ. Even though Jesus, and we'll talk about this in a moment, had not been what it appeared he said he was. And that leads me to the second question, which also probes deeply, or at least it can. Are we loyal when the Lord disappoints us? Um, I ask you this question because, you see, I look at this, and I'm inspired. I'll be honest with you. I'm inspired by the devotion 
of the core of women who were committed to Jesus. I mean, the truth is that they were the ones whose love was steadfast. It was as true in defeat as it was in success. It's interesting, because all the disciples were with Jesus when the crowds were clamoring and the streets were lined, and they were saying, what? You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, are you part of that Jesus? You're with Jesus. You're with Jesus. Yes, we're one of his, we're one of his key men. Absolutely. They had dreams, too. They were all, it's easy to follow him when everybody's yelling praise to his name. But when those crowds shifted and the cries became crucify him, and all of a sudden what had been a source of pride becomes now a stigma with potential risk attached to it. They were nowhere to be found. But the women showed up. They showed up and they stayed and they held and their core love for Christ did not waver. John came back to give him credit for that and, and, and he did. But the fact of the matter is when I look at this, I go, wow. You know, the, the, the loyalty shows up not when things are just going our way. It really shows up when everyone else is running away. It's like, what are you going to do when you disappoint? It's almost like, you know, Jesus, okay, he, he wasn't what he said. But that love held. That love was stronger even than the questions. And are there not come, don't there not come things in our lives that we say, Lord, you know, you're disappointing me. Why is this happening? Where are you? And there's always a temptation right there in that place to, to go away. I was reminded of words that Jesus had said earlier to Peter, and he actually said them to the disciples. Because there was this moment in the ministry of Christ where Jesus was sensing that there were so many people who were following him, but they were following him for the wrong reasons. So he started saying things intentionally to win on the crowd. He started talking about the cost of discipleship, and then he started saying things that made people, even ardent, committed people, question, wow, is this really necessary? And the more he said it, it's like you could, they, the disciples were going, Jesus, don't, don't do that. They're all going to go. Finally, when there was very few people left, Jesus turned to the disciples. He says, do you also want to go away? Are you also finished with me? I mean, he may have looked in their eyes, almost like, has what I said offended you? Do you also want to go? And that's when Peter stepped forward beautifully, right? Lord, you, where are we going to go? We believe you have the words of life. We may not understand them all the time, but we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But loved ones, what do we do when God disappoints us? How was our, see, it was very disappointing because so many people had placed their dreams in Jesus. And to watch what had happened was so hard to deal with. And yet they held in their love. There is a love that holds even when it doesn't appear to be going the way we want it to go. And I'm going to ask us, can our devotion for Jesus hold even when we feel disappointed? Because that's when it really shows up. Thirdly, lastly, are we willing to evidence that devotion in action, in tangible ways? Uh, again, I go back to Joseph and Nicodemus. They demonstrated their love for Jesus in tangible ways, even when they had every reason in the world. Think about this. It could have been very easy to rationalize why it made no sense to do this now. It's almost, I can imagine Joseph having a conversation, and he says, look, I made a decision. I'm going to ask for the body of Jesus. I've got to do this. I've got to honor him. I, I never spoke up when I should have. I should have done something. i got to do it now. And then I can imagine someone saying, but Joseph, come on. It's crazy. Look, 
I acknowledge you probably should have spoke up. I get it. I understand why you didn't. You should have. You feel guilty about it. But listen, you have nothing to gain right now. There's nothing. That, that whatever he was, whatever he said, he, he wasn't who he was anyway. And it's going to cost you every. Don't do it. It makes little sense. Admit it was a mistake. I get that. But is it really necessary for you to do this now when it's going to cost you? Why? Why put it? Why do it? Why do it? You have nothing. And you know, I'm amazed at this, but instead of using, this is what it stood out, instead of using their past reluctance as an excuse for inaction, think about it, they used it as a motivation for action. It's almost like I may have failed them before, but just because I did doesn't mean I'm not going to show up now. Instead of saying, you know, I may have failed them before, so what does it matter? You know what he says? We may have failed them before, but I'm showing up now. There is a love that risks, that shows up. And he did. And he was part of a story that he had no idea was about to change this world forever. You know, generations before that, it had been prophesied by a prophet. And some of the most amazing things is hundreds of years before, the prophets would talk about the coming Messiah. And they would write words down. And they would say these things that people would say, what does it mean? It doesn't seem to make sense. But hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, a prophet by the name of Isaiah wrote some words down. And he said this, and I put them in your handout. Isaiah 53, verses 8 and 9. Unjustly condemned. Look at this. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants in the prime of his life. His life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people, Isaiah says. Struck down. And he had done no wrong. Truly he had not. No sin was in him. No guile in his mouth. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried, killed, basically, like a criminal. And look at that last phrase. What does it say? And he was put in a rich man's grave. Hundreds of years before it's ever written, God saw Joseph preparing his own, and you know what, and I'll tell you something right now. It, that action that Joseph takes, that rich man who opened up that grave, I'm going to tell you, it, asking Pilate for the body, it took courage. Who knows how that crazy man was going to react? It took courage. Who knows what my own associates were going to do to me for making that statement? They might cut me off, push me out. It took courage. It, it, giving, giving him that tomb was a costly expression. It was costly. And, and taking his body and carrying it with a few others, that was hard work. And he did it. He did it. And I'm thinking, love that costs us nothing in the end is worthless. It's not much love at all. Love that doesn't cost us anything. Think about the love of God. It costs him everything. And we are given opportunities to demonstrate our love for the Lord at different times. Sometimes we need to, the question is, will I show up for you, Lord? How loyal am I to you? in my private moments when no one sees. And sometimes God's saying, I just need you to show up for me there. Other times God's saying, I need you to show up for me in a public way. I'm not talking about blasting a trumpet and being crazy. I'm just talking about not being ashamed of me to let someone know you. I, I love him. That name means something to me. See? Public, we got uh, the love that... It, is undeclared devotion is, is not going to make it. God wants us to declare our devotion in, in tender, true, and honest ways. May God give us courage to do this.
Let's pray. Lord, I want to I ask you to, to help us. Um, you know, we look, at, we look at this man who comes out of the shadows. We look at the devotion of the women, Lord, who, who stayed with you through the end. And, and again, Lord, it's a reminder to all of us. Some of us, Lord, you're calling us. Please don't let us use our failures as an excuse for being responsive now. Instead, let us take a page from the life of Joseph of Arimathea. And let us, Lord, choose to say, it may be true. I may not have always come through in the way that I should. But now I will. And I pray that some of us, Lord, when we come to these moments of decision where we're given these opportunities to represent your heart, would not be ashamed of you, would not be afraid of what it will cost us. Blessed are you. Lord, give us a courageous love that is willing to speak your name um, with, with, with courage and boldness, um, unafraid, unashamed. And I, I pray that our heart would be devoted to you as the years go by, and that we would think about ways in which we can express that love in, in ways that others can understand and, and appreciate. Yes, I hope that would be the case, Lord. But just help us not to live in the shadows when it comes to following you. Give us a devoted heart. This is what we pray. Bless, Lord, even now, um, our time of giving. Bless this closing song. Bless this week and all the opportunities it presents. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.